Welcome to Jen Rubin's Green Room. This is Jen Rubin. I am so happy on this edition to have with me someone who I've come to respect, admire, and really just get along like gangbusters with, and that's Dahlia Lithwick. Um, she's a lawyer. She is a accomplished writer, an author. She has her own podcast. And I felt the need to have Dahlia on because... As those of you who know from following my work uh, have been seeing, my level of angst about the judiciary, about the trajectory of constitutional law in this country has really um, been uh, growing. And um, clearly before Dobbs, I saw that there was um, real problems and with the Dobbs decision and really these cynical, hyper-partisan opinions since then and with, frankly, the justices' behavior off the court when they go on these screeds and go to political settings and um, take on their critics, it has left me adrift because I was once a law student, I was once a lawyer, and I thought I knew kind of how the law worked, that there were certain principles that you could predict with some sense of confidence where the law was going or where the law um, was still to be made, and that you had confidence that judges would rule um, with a measure of objectivity, understanding that objectivity is virtually impossible. And that has all come kind of crashing down in the last couple of years. And we're back to what they used to call legal realism. There were cynics way back when who don't look so cynical anymore. They look very prescient, who said, you know, forget all this stuff about legal tests. Just figure out who the judges are and what their political objectives are, and then you'll get the answer. And we used to roar, oh, that's so silly. That's so cynical. That's politics. This is the law. Well, it, look who's having the last laugh. So to help me kind of sort this out, maybe feel a little bit better about it, or maybe figure out um, if there's a way through this thicket, um, if there are reforms, if there are alternatives in other branches of government and through public action to deal with the crisis of confidence in the court, I do have my friend Dahlia Lithwick. She is a Canadian by birth. She went to Yale Law School. She has uh, a must-read column at Slate. She has a must-listen-to podcast at uh, for Amicus, uh, is the name of it. And I'm just thrilled to have her sit down with me today and help think through some of these really hard issues. Welcome to the show, Dahlia. Lovely Hi, to see Jen. you and have you. Congratulations. A treat oh, thank to be you. here. I have joined the wonderful world of podcasting. I know you have your own, Amicus, which is must-listen for lawyers. Um, I think back, you know, to the first time I think we ever met in person. It was at the Jewish Museum in Philadelphia, and it was shortly after, I don't remember how long after, the Charlottesville episode, because you have a home in Charlottesville. I don't know if you still live there or not, but you had a pretty personal experience with that, didn't you? It's true. That's when we met. We were on stage together, and I was probably still in PTSD, although I I think, you know, all these years later, I'm still still in PTSD even after we moved. But it was an amazing thing 
I mean, in a whole bunch of different ways, but it was an amazing thing to have lived in a town for 18 years, to have raised our kids there. You know, that was our synagogue, that was our preschool, um, to have those events of August 2017 happen, you know, in this tiny postage size, stamp size town. Um, I think it still in some ways stands as an avatar of kind of rock bottom of how badly things went off the rails. But I also think, I mean, I'm curious if you agree, it also stands for the proposition that without accountability and without an understanding of how things happen and connections and who pays for things and how they get organized, they just keep rippling onward. Yeah. You know, it. on one hand, yes, it was rock bottom, but I also kind of think of it as the point at which um, the resistance got serious, where you could see this manifestation of fascism, which is what Trump really stands for. And because people tend to associate fascism with one expression of it, Nazi Germany, they don't recognize it when it comes in a somewhat milder form. And this gave a visual image of these scary thugs with their torches um, saying the Jews will not replace us. So in some ways, I think it was a wake-up call for America. And listen, I don't think Joe Biden would run for president had that not occurred. Uh, That's what he has continued to say, that that was a galvanizing moment. I think he does say that. And I think it's interesting because in some sense for me, it also became the moment of this split screen when, I guess the best way to put it is that when January 6th happened, my two teenage sons who were watching it unfold, I guess at Zoom school at that point, uh, both ran downstairs and said, but this is Charlottesville again. I mean, it looked exactly the same to them. It was... Why aren't the police doing anything? Imagine if this was a crowd of largely, you know, black and brown men, how this would have gone differently. How did they not heed the warnings? We knew for a week in advance this was coming. And so for my kids, it was exactly the same thing. And one of the lessons of both Charlottesville and January 6th for me is that that was the moment in which, in some sense, the timeline splits And they're either benign tourists who are at the gift shop or they're kind of disaffected, lonely guys, you know, cosplaying from their mom's basement. I mean, there's a a sort of benign story that is told about both of these events. Like, these are just kind of sad incels who got a little high on their own supply and then did some damage. But this isn't Jan Rubin fascism. This is just you know, a a man problem or a racism problem. And then there is exactly what you saw and I think what President Biden saw and what I certainly lived through and what my kids saw, which is actually, no, this this looks like something very systemic and very organized and very serious. And I almost think it's funny, you know, we're, we're speaking right the week after we're having a national conversation about the pool draining at Mar-a-Lago and whether that was a nefarious attempt to like suppress evidence or whether that was just... Business you know, is normal. Comedy gold. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I just think that for me, Charlottesville in some ways stands for the proposition that that's when everything could be explained away as benign and also everything could be deadly serious. 
And it really was one of the first incidents where we were told not to believe our lying eyes. We were told to believe that there were good people on both sides. We were told to believe that this was not a, a big deal or that it wasn't about race or it wasn't about Jews. So I think you're right about the timeline splitting. And maybe that's a good segue to the court, speaking of PTSD and depressing moments in our lives. Like you, I was trained as a lawyer and I grew up with a level of respect for the court as an institution. I thought there were better justices and worse justices. I agreed with some opinions and not. But there was a certain intellectual integrity and a certain level of respect. And I have completely lost that. And I wonder if I was naive before or whether something has just fundamentally changed in such dramatic way that I don't know if I could ever feel that way about the court, but certainly this court, I don't feel in the same way that I have every other court, whatever the composition. Is that something you've been experiencing? Oh, I mean, I'm experiencing it so acutely that I feel like I am in flames most days because I think that it is very hard to go on TV or, you know, to be in conversation and not say, no, this is really different. This is not, again, that split timeline, you know, to hear Josh Hawley or Mike Lee talk about it, you know, oh, you're just grumpy because you're losing now, right? You're just focusing on Harlan Crow because when you were getting your way with Obergefell or Whole Women's Health, it was exactly the same court. It's just now you got outmaneuvered and you're losing. And that's one version of the story. And we hear it a lot, right? We don't need ethics reforms. We just need liberals to stop being crybabies and sore losers. And then I think there's the version that you and I are telling, which is, no, this is singularly different. This is singularly different, even from the court that gave us Shelby County, that gave us Citizens United, that gave us Bush v. Gore. Those were partisan political decisions. And what we have seen probably since Amy Coney Barrett got onto the court is something fundamentally different. We're not talking about the same structure, the same animal. We're in a different world. And I think because you and I feel that way, we're never going to win an argument against the people who say you're just grumpy about Dobbs. And it's really interesting to see different people using different forms of analysis to describe how it has gone off the rails. You know, I'm thinking of Steve Vladek's amazing book about the shadow docket and how things are done on an emergency basis in the sort of cloak of darkness. I'm thinking of, you know, my critique of the court, which is, you know, that they're striking down laws but not giving us new tests. They're arrogating new powers to themselves. You know, that in three days last June, we got the end of Dobbs. We got the end of the... um, uh, uh, ability to, to to regulate carbon emissions. We got a new test for guns. All that stuff happened, but we don't know what the new doctrine is. There's no new tests. Right. There's just no right. old tests. Um, but whatever the metric is, we can't seem to agree in any conversation about what's different, only that it feels different. Right. I look at it sort of this way. Um, it's as if they have decided to stop trying They have decided to stop trying the pose of impartiality. They have decided to stop pretending that they are doing something other than politics. And they have stopped pretending that they're even judges. When you hear 
Sam Alito make these speeches, he sounds like Josh Hawley. He is out there screaming and making, you know, snide remarks about analysts and reporters. He is taking offense that we would dare question his opinions. These are acting like pouty politicians and little um, soldiers in the partisan war. And it's funny you should say they're not giving us a doctrine. Can you imagine trying to teach law school these days? What would you tell them? You know, when I was, you know, back in the dark old days, you know, you could explain what the compelling state interests and narrowly tailored and least offensive alternatives, and that would be a constitutional test. You kind of knew where things were going. And there was a predictability because that's what it's supposed to be. It's the law. You're supposed to have a sense of how things are going. But here, how would you teach it other than simply to say, well, these are the things that Clarence Thomas likes, and these are the things he doesn't like, and this is, you know, where we think politically he is. But how do you teach law that way? How do you teach new lawyers? I don't know how you teach law, and frankly, I don't know how you study for the bar. You know, I mean, after the Bruin case last year, as you said, I don't know what other than being a, a able historian who can channel Clarence Thomas's able historian, how you would possibly figure out what kind of gun regulation stands and what doesn't. And, you know, we know that the lemon test, which is the sort of test, that the, the, the decades old test that tells us about the line between church and state is functionally gone, but we don't have a new test in its place. And I think he said something really interesting and important, Jen, that maybe is worth lifting up, which is there is so much threaded through the doctrine that is just grievance. Um, and whether it's, you know, Neil Gorsuch saying that, you know, the mask mandates and the COVID interventions were the single greatest intrusion on civil liberties and peacetime in the history of this country, you know, sort of seemingly forgetting about Korematsu, seemingly forgetting about Jim Crow and, you know, the entirety of of, of enslavement. Or but his I own think- opinion in Dobbs. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just think it's so bizarre to me that it's not just that they've kind of put down their masks of being oracular, you know, of being, I love the masks metaphor because it's like the umpire, right? They're throwing away their umpire masks and now they're just Newsmax, you know, reporters and they're super mad. But I think folded into that, and this gets to the ethics piece of it, which is such a key part of it. And I think at our peril, we say that all the Harlan Crow, Leonard Leo ethics stuff is separate from the doctrinal right. shift, because I think they're of a piece, right? I think Absolutely. they're both two sides of this coin that say, but I'm the king, and I get to do what I want, and I don't need your stinking disclosure rules, and I don't care about your statutes that compel me to, you know, report uh, hospitality. Whatever it is, it's at the same time the self-aggrandizement of saying— We'll tell you what doctrine is when we're good and ready, but right now, just trust us. We just don't like Roe. Plus, we're going to do whatever the hell we want to do, and you can't stop us because we're the boss of you. Right. And, you know, just the contempt with which they hold other branches of government, there is no reason why John Roberts should not have appeared voluntarily before the Senate 
to explain the position on ethics. It is perfectly legitimate. He appears there to deliver his kind of state of the judiciary and his ask for budget matters. Um, it's not unheard of for them to testify. He's not being interrogated as a percipient witness. He's being asked to come to testify about a singularly important matter that Congress does legislate, court jurisdiction. Um, We think they have the ability of court rules. And he just said, forget it. I'm not coming. Now, fortunately or not, I think not actually, um, the very passive Senate Democrats just have let it go. Um, What would we have done had he issued a subpoena? That would have been fun. Um, But just the contempt and their notion of judicial independence has gotten so twisted. Judicial independence doesn't mean that you have unlimited power. It's the opposite of that. It's that you have this, um, that within your own sphere, within the decision-making sphere, you may have a certain assigned role, but no one branch um, is going to exercise domination over the others. And that as members of the judiciary and the people who the average citizen thinks of when they think of the law, they have a special obligation to be accommodating, to show good faith, to show magnanimity. And if there was one trait that these people have entirely lost, it's magnanimity. Can you imagine? Just the arrogance, the arrogance of power, the arrogance of disregarding Preston, the arrogance of not paying attention, the arrogance of, we'll figure out this ethics thing, leave us alone. Um, And because it's gotten so out of whack, I think I've come around on two points. I am very curious to get your view. First of all, I think Sheldon Whitehouse is exactly right. I think a lot of this is the financial corruption of how they got there. Um, Whitehouse has been talking for years, and people have sort of regarded him as a crank at times, that the whole process of selecting judges, confirming judges, has become some so infused with dark money from right-wing groups that we really don't have a judicial process anymore. It's this sneaky, political, behind-closed-doors, goodness knows who's paying Leo Leonard's bills to get these people thrown. So I think I've changed on that. I think he's exactly right. And the other is, I'm beginning to change my mind on so-called court packing. Um, Have you changed your mind or were you always there? And what do you think is wrong with expanding the court to 13 since we have 13 now circuits? Yeah, I I thought I was the last to change my mind. So it's heartening to hear that you're a little bit behind me. I probably, um, I, I would say around the time that Amy Coney Barrett was rammed onto the court in complete contravention of the so-called principle that you cannot do this uh, in a president's uh, last term. And at that point, millions of people had already voted and they were ramming Amy Coney Barrett onto the court. And so I think that was when I was able to say, you can call this stolen seats or you can call this court packing, but whatever it is, uh, this is Mitch McConnell changing uh, the rules in order to change the size of the court. And so I, I think I'm probably 
maybe two years into a, a willingness to say that this is simply existential. And it's existential for all the reasons you laid out before, which is, and, and this a little bit is my answer to the Mike Lees and to the Senator John Kennedys who say that you and I, what we really want to do is delegitimize the court because we don't like the decisions. I think the court has delegitimized itself. Exactly. And when they come after the press, they are shooting the messenger. I think that the court has had every opportunity in the intervening years to do something about its legitimacy problem. And as you said, not only does John Roberts say, I decline to come testify, I decline to impose low-hanging fruit ethics rules, right? You don't even have to abide by the ethics rules. Just pretend you're enacting them and pretend you're enforcing them. So the willingness for the court to be completely intransigent on the issue that they have a problem and moreover to turn around and blame each other, to blame the Dobbs leaker, to blame the press, to blame the academy, has suggested to me that the court is going to do nothing to solve its legitimacy problem. And for you and I, who went to law school, who I think in our darkest worries, fear that the 2024 election is going to go to the courts or the 2028 election. I would like to have a functioning court in the country. Um, You know, as Anita Hill said when I interviewed her for my book, we fight for the rule of law because there's no plan B. Plan B is chaos. Plan B is the army. Plan B is violence, right? And so I think that when you and I say we want the court to be legitimate, that's not because we didn't like Dobbs. That's because you can't have a functioning constitutional democracy and have an illegitimate court. And so the idea, and and this is the other thing I want to pull on that we've been talking about, but maybe I want to say it explicitly. When I look at what the court has done, as you say, to delegitimize not just the court, but government writ large, right? Whether it's Gorsuch attacking government agencies, whether it's, you know, uh, Clarence Thomas impugning the integrity of people who give out gun licenses, whether it's the claim that, you know, the government is full of these tawdry lawyers who are pencil-pushing bureaucrats who want to take away your freedom. It comes up all the time. And this is how we get the Clean Water Act decision. It's how we got the EPA uh, uh, decision last year. It's how we got those COVID vaccine decisions. I think the single biggest attacker of legitimacy of government right now is court rhetoric. And so when I see the court delegitimizing itself, that's like one rabbit punch to my gut because Right. I believe in the court. So do you. As you said, that's how you and I came out of law school. But to watch the court participate in the daily attacks on election workers, on teachers, on uh, just good people who go to work every day doing their jobs, I think is so breathtaking. And I think this is the last thing I'll say. I think it loops into this theme of creepy vigilantism, the idea that if you don't trust anyone, all you can do is trust yourself. And that is what the court is performing when it tells us time and time and time again 
that every regulatory agency, that every entity that we trust to make decisions for our children's, for our health, for our environment is a bunch of lying liars, they are actually helping seed the ground for the vigilantism we are seeing around the country, not just in the elections context, but in attacks, like actual attacks on teachers, actual attacks on doctors, actual attacks on poll workers. So I think there's an almost perfect creepy circle here, and that's the circle I want to break when I say that the court can just swan around with impunity. You know, the best example of this was, granted it was a dissent of sorts, but it was when the abortion medication issue came up to the court. And in the dissent, the argument was, this isn't an urgent matter because the government may not follow the direction anyway. That is imputing that the federal government would act in contempt of court, would disregard the court, and therefore, why are we even in courts? If you just assume bad faith in the government, what is the court doing at all? Um, It was such a vile attack on the integrity of government and on the whole concept of law. If everyone's going to ignore you, why do we even have you? Maybe you can go home because you're just assuming no one's going to pay attention to you. Well, I'll tell you when people stop paying attention to you is when you start acting like a bunch of political thugs. And I found that so insulting um, and really unprecedented. Um, And now whenever an issue kind of even approaches um, the Supreme Court, when you know it's making its way up or you know there's a conflict with uh, in circuits, you get this feeling in the pit of your stomach, they're going to do it again. They're going to take an issue that has precedent, that has a historical context, and they're just going to rip it out because they can, because they have the votes. And that's just wrong. And, you know, when we talk about reforming the court, for a while I had this notion that, oh, well, maybe court term limits are the answer, that you can impose them. And it's a little bit of sleight of hand because, yes, you have lifetime appointment, but maybe you would just serve on this court for 18 months and then get off. You know who talked me out of that position was Larry Tribe. He said, first of all, it's going to take forever if that's the way you're doing it because you're going to have to have these staggered terms. Second of all, who is going to abide by them if you think they're not constitutional. And guess who thing is going to decide whether those term limits are constitutional? I can answer the question before you get the words out, which is, of course, this Supreme Court would never abide by them. And then we would have real lawlessness. So they've almost made it impossible for us to take lesser measures. They've made it impossible for us to say, well, the problem can be solved by ethics. Oh, the problem can be solved by term limits. Okay, the problem can't be solved. So we need major, major surgery. And there's nothing sacred about having nine of them. The number has changed from time to time. The number of judges on the highest court in most Western democracies is much larger than ours. Some of these courts have 20 people, 25 people. And the argument that, oh, well, the Republicans will just expand the court when they get it, I kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, fine. You know, if we get up to 18 or 20, I mean, that's what it will be. And maybe in a larger mix of people, it'll be a little harder to 
summon a majority to make these outrageous decisions. So I'm still looking for an argument um, against it. And yet in the back of my mind, I know there are many Democrats, even if you could deal with the filibuster, who are so afraid of this that I don't know whether they would do it. Is there some great fear that you have that that we're missing here? Is there some horrible thing that would happen if we suddenly went to 13 members in the court? And by the way, we wouldn't have to give all four nominations to Biden. We could agree that he gets two and, you know, the next two presidents each get one. Um, are we missing something? I, I mean, one fun fact is that a lot of the same groups that are opposing court reform, adding seats, uh, you know, jurisdiction stripping term limits in the conservative legal movement in this country are the ones who are pushing hardest for it in Israel, doing all those things to the Israeli Supreme Court. So they don't seem to be in any way plagued by, and I realize that, you know, there are constitutional differences, but they're not plagued by the need for consistency, right? They're calling for all of those reforms to the quote-unquote activist Israeli Supreme Court while suggesting that it's like shocking and unthinkable and, you know, the death penalty here. So I think we shouldn't spend too, too much time trying to, like, find a principle here other than the ends justify the means. I I think that the really intractable and depressing answer to why these things aren't happening, and it's not just adding seats, right, Jen? It's anything. I mean, it's the lowest, lowest interventions like ethics reform or like, uh, you know, uh, term Better limits. disclosure, I, financial disclosure. Disclosure. I think that there is a structural answer. And you and I have had this conversation in the context of Merrick Garland. We've had the context, this, you know, conversation in other contexts. But I just think there is both an enthusiasm gap Uh, There's an awareness gap. It's staggering to me that the American public took the lesson of Dobbs that you and I were unable to deliver as journalists, which is if you don't like Dobbs, it's because of the court. You know, like that was very hard for us to do because I don't think that that media conversation happened exactly the way we wanted it to. And yet the American public understood it loud and clear and took away from Dobbs. Oh, these are the perils of minority rule. Okay, got it. And yet in the intervening time, we've seen Almost no enthusiasm for any conversation from the left about structural core reform. You know, you're quite right. We have a couple of bills out there. Obviously, nothing can happen with Congress as it is now structured. But the idea that elected officials are still almost to a one in this funny Patty Hearst relationship with the court where they feel that the court, when the court says to them, hey, you know, judicial independence and, hey, checks and balances, what that means is nobody touches the court, is so baked into the way I think our side has thought about the court. And the crack up in all this is that if you look historically, Congress has absolutely participated in shaping the size of the court, docking judicial pay, determining jurisdiction. These things have all happened. It's not like this hasn't happened, but we have locked ourselves into this weird narrative. I think probably beginning the, the countdown clock and ending it at FDR's attempt to pack the court, that this is a loser. 
And so yeah. in a strange way, the political classes and the elite classes, and certainly I think most Democrats, are very much where, where, where you're positing, which is, well, what can you do? We're stuck. I sure hope our great-grandchildren, you know, find their way out of this. Whereas right. I think the American public is desperate to see a meaningful conversation about how we got into this situation, how we can get out of it. So I think right. this is just in a weird way, a kind of creepy failure of leadership. Yes, it is. And when we had that commission that was going to study the Supreme Court, it actually, and they assembled scholars from all across the political spectrum. Um, they didn't reach too many conclusions, but it was really interesting. It was well done. There was a lot of discussion about these basic issues. And Biden, whom I think has been a very good president, just gave it the back of the hand as if I'm not even going to think about this. Um, and you're right. The reaction to Dobbs was, oh, my God, let's figure out how to save abortion rights where we can and how we're going to do that, which I applaud and I encouraged and um, was magnificent in our ability to respond um, in a democratic fashion. But it was not, gosh, the people, who, there must be something wrong with a court that would give us Dobbs. So what happens with each of these opinions is we are scrambling around to deal with the disasters that the court enacts rather than saying, the disaster machine is what is wrong with this. And we got to fix that. I, I love what you're saying because it's the perfect setup for the fact that in the next three weeks, we're going to see probably the end of affirmative action in higher education. We're going to see probably the end of the Indian Child Welfare Act. We're probably going to see the demise of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, what's left of the Voting Rights Act to curb partisan gerrymandering. We're going to see, uh, to curb, I'm sorry, uh, 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 racial gerrymandering. We're going to see the end of um, public accommodations protections for LGBTQ Americans seeking services. Uh, and God knows what's going to happen when the independent state legislature and, and just a few weeks ago, um, the Clean Water Act was right. Uh, gutted, right? And what people are going to say that last week of June is like, huh, well, what, maybe we can move to wealth-based affirmative action, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe there's another way, you know, to, to get like independent state gerrymandering. I mean, we don't say, as you said, there is a democracy-breaking machine that is producing these outcomes. And instead of saying, huh, maybe we could look at the democracy-breaking machine, uh, we just scramble around to make the best of the ruins. And, you know, if you look at the post gun the post-Bruin landscape where we have judges around the country, you know, willy-nilly setting aside, oh, you know, laws that protect uh, women in battered women's shelters. Well, those have to be struck down because there was no such thing as battered women's shelters, right? There was no such thing. <laughs> yes, as, right. I mean, this is insane. Right. And instead yes. of saying, like, we need to get those, you know, kids to, to fight harder for gun control in Louisiana, yeah. we say, we don't say, like, what the hell is with this machine that just set the clock back to 1791 on guns? Right. One of my favorite questions, by the way, I get from readers is, well, if they want to play that game, why don't we allow people to own a musket since that was what was in fashion in 1790s? But, you know, and it's kind of a sweet jab, but they're right. I mean, this whole notion, and this gets to the fundamental problem with this court. I sometimes imagine, by the way, that both the founding fathers and Justice Marshall great uh, Supreme Court justice, will come back and said, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Who thought that we were going to 
freeze things in the 1790s. Are you people mad? That's why we gave you a Supreme Court. That's why we have an amendment system. So I think they would come back and be horrified by what what has transposed, transpired rather. But I think what ultimately they are doing is they are literally resetting the clock. We're going to determine women's rights at a point in history when women had no rights. We're going to determine gun rights at a point in history where guns were not a existential threat to personal safety and security. It's a system that has no intellectual justification. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you set the entire framework of constitutional law at a specific time that is forever going to dominate, that is not affected by subsequent events, that's not affected by the fact that women have the vote, that's not affected by all of the social changes? I thought the rule was, silly me, that when you were looking at constitutional principles and wanted to look at the beyond the text, that you were going to look at the last 50 years, not 150 years, and then omit the intervening time to discover the mores of the American people, the values, the principles of constitutional. They say, no, forget the last 150 years. That was all a mistake. The point in time we really liked things was 1868. That was, you know, that's the America we're going to have. That's insane. That is just insane. And there's no moral, intellectual justification for it. Um, And I got to think that at some point, that very fact is the reason why we have to do some fundamental change. We have a court that wants us, not this is not a figurative thing, wants us to operate under the rules of the 19th century. You cannot have a modern democracy, a diverse democracy, and go back to 1868 and say all the rules are going to apply from that point. So, so the three tells that I would put forth that they aren't serious about this originalism project, yeah. one, you've just identified it's not real originalism, right? It's cherry-picked originalism. If you read the opinion in Bruin, I mean, every historian you know, who, who fact-checked Bruin said, this is ridiculous. This isn't even good originalism. The same is Correct. true of Dobbs, right? So it's bad originalism. Two, the theory of originalism, as I almost believed it when I read Justice Scalia offering it up, was that it was a theory of constraint, right? The idea was the alternative is you make stuff up as you go along. That's bad. At minimum, originalism selling point, says Scalia, is that judges are constrained, right? Because they can't... But except that now we see the opposite of constraint. They're just totally making it up. And the third tell is in the kind of intervening month since we got this fake, bad, uh, maximalist, non-humble originalism is that some of the very people who used to put forth originalism as their constitutional theory are moving away from it. They're like, what we meant was we wanted to win the courts, but now we're going to, you know, posit some new theory. And so I think on every single level, originalism, like the fact that we ever were hoodwinked into having a conversation about it, that's bad for us. The fact that there was a brief moment after Heller where we were all originalists now, like, is embarrassing. But I don't think anybody should believe for a minute that what's what we're seeing now is a theory of minimalism or humility or no, restraint. No, it's the opposite. It's and the opposite. that in fact, you know, some of these creepy moves to, you know, 
public good stuff and having councils of white Christian men who tell us what to do. I mean, the moves post-originalism that we are seeing is very, very scary. And maybe the last thing I want to say is this, because it goes to your Dobbs framing, and I think it's just so important. When Justice Alito sets the clock back to a time when women are still their husband's property and they can still be raped and they can't own anything and says, but, right, this is the opinion in in Dobbs, you are not without electoral power, right? That's the trolling piece. Like, go out and vote if you don't like it. And I just want to be super clear on why that's trolly. It's tr- and you probably can come up with five more reasons. But the two principal reasons that that's just fatuous in the extreme is that this is the same court that is systematically making it harder to vote, right? Whether it's gerrymandering, whether it's vote suppression, whether it's the independent state. It's like, please don't tell me that the cure here is more voting because you have made voting harder in 20 years than right. it ever was before. But I think the bigger piece of trolling is that we are seeing legislatures around the country now say, oh, we don't mean that you can put it on a ballot initiative. We're not saying you can put it up to a referendum in your state. We're, you know, what they're doing in Ohio, we're going to make it harder to get this on the ballot. And so I just think that once you have, and it goes to your democracy breaking machine point, Jen, which is exactly the right frame. Once you have broken voting, you cannot posit voting as the cure to doing minority rule things. And Dobbs, in some sense, is the highest, most cynical manifestation of Justice Alito saying, if you don't like it, just vote at the same time that he has made it harder to vote and that legislatures following his directives are making it harder to vote. And, of course, the entire principle of constitutional rights is that the majority doesn't control. That's, it's nuts to say, well, I think we're going to decide whether blacks should have votes. Put it out to a vote. Go vote on it. No, that's the purpose of a court. That's the purpose of having minority rights. That's why we have a Bill of Rights, because the founders knew that not everything should be up for grabs, that there are certain fundamental rights that you don't get to willy-nilly vote out or vote up or down. If you really want to, you have, have a constitutional amendment process. But no, we don't get to vote on a on free speech. Would they like us to vote on gun rights? I would like to vote on gun rights, actually. That would be a good one. Um, but it's just balderdash. I mean, it is, as you say, it's so cynical um, and so mean-spirited that it just causes me despair. Uh, and I am always you know, the sunny optimist. Um, (laughs) But I am not. Um, Now, because we don't want to leave our listeners in a complete puddle of depression and gloom, let's come up with a few positive things that we can say. One, I'm going to point to a recent decision by Uh, Judge Thomas Parker in Tennessee that struck down the drag queen law. Here is a Trump appointee that looks at the law and says, okay, this is crap. This is just a content discriminatory rule. There is a First Amendment and you people may not like it, but that's the law. That's a very short version of a 70-page opinion. So I get some measure of, I don't know, not relief, but, you know, momentary smiles, that there are still judges, even judges appointed by conservative or right-wing presidents, 
who, when presented with something, will actually do the right thing. It's not often, it's not always, and you better not have a zip code that puts you in the Fifth Circuit or the Eleventh Circuit, because then you're completely screwed. Um, but in general, there are still many, many judges who are going to play it fair. Is there anything else that gives you solace? Um, maybe the composition of the court that Biden is changing, the kind of nominees he's putting up there? Um Maybe all the friends we've made as we're watching the Supreme Court and the Constitution go up in smoke. Is there some positive that has come out of this? When I would just add one coda to your um, the um, uh, ruling on uh, drag performances, which is on um, June 6th. We had a U.S. District Court uh, Judge Robert Hinkle, uh, who uh, granted a preliminary injunction in Florida um, of a really, really uh, draconian law that would have prevented gender-affirming health care for trans minors in Florida. And it's a similarly uh, amazing opinion because it just calls out what is fact and what is not fact. And it's a pretty impressive uh, piece of sort of judicial writing that essentially says, look, there's a whole uh, massive quantum of just making stuff up and fear-mongering and, uh, you know, just patent untruths in the record, and I'm debunking them. And so I think I, I say this is a lawyerly answer to your lawyerly question, which is I think as long as there are institutions that are rooted in the finding of facts and the scrutiny of facts, it doesn't, uh, I don't despair. I, I think the other thing that gives me a lot of hope is, you know, I do go back to the world post-Dobbs where everybody experienced this moment of, like, how did we get here? And I know you and I did not experience it that way because we believed the leak. We believed what we saw at oral arguments. We believed SB8 and we knew it was coming. But I think for most Americans, there was just this very magical thinking that the court would never overturn Roe. And that was a shocker for people. And what we saw that summer, whether it was in Kentucky or whether it was in Michigan or whether it was in all Kansas. the states that put it on the ballot and whether it's now, you know, women in Ohio, Door knock- I mean, both you and I have written books about, you know, women door knocking who were never cared or believed that politics was the means for change are doing the work. And so I think what I am seeing that does hearten me is exactly the thing I think you were laying out, which is I'm not sure that the political machine understands the problem with democracy. I just don't know that it does. I think the reason we still have a filibuster, the reason we still have blue slips, the reason that there is still a malapportioned Senate and an electoral college, like the, the house is structurally broken, right? And I think that we have a political machine that is like, you know, like, well, you know, we could like slap some wallpaper on it and, you know, maybe put in some new, you know, siding and it'll be okay. I think that there are millions of Americans who are a little bit closer to where you and I are, which is that this needs major repairs, that we're going to have to dig up the racist, misogynist, you know, oligarchic foundations of this thing and fix it. And I... I mean, it scares me because I do think, and this is what you're describing, there's a foot race now, right, between the Leonard Leos of the world who are just going to capture the machinery of democracy and use it to their ends and 
people who are kind of awake and involved and like those kids in Tennessee and, you know, we're seeing it every day. So I'm really heartened by the fact that I'm not sure that a year ago I thought we were capable of being awake to this. I think we really are. Yeah. No, I, I would agree with that. And I would also say that I sometimes think of poor Katanji Brown Jackson, who, you know, wanted this job probably her whole adult life, who wouldn't want to be on the court, and is now stuck there with these crazy people, writing dissents day after day after day. Maybe she and Kagan and Sotomayor get together and have a seance and talk to Ruth Bader Bader Ginsburg about how crazy these people really are. But they are there biding their time. And what I say to law students who I speak to, what I say to the public is the dissents of today are the majority opinions of tomorrow. That was true with Dred Stott. That was true with Plessy. Um, And that there is an intellectual foundation that they have expressed and some really good originalist um, history on the part of uh, KPJ that gives me hope that, you know, sort of like the, uh, you know, Planet of the Apes, you know, when we find the Statue (laughs) of Liberty broken on the beach, there'll be a little like scrap of an opinion from Gadanji Brown Jackson that will say, here are the instructions. Here's the repair, how to put back the Statue of Liberty. Here we go. So um, we, I guess, have to laugh because the alternative is to cry and scream. But I think we leave our listeners with the message of your book and the message of my book, which was be an active participant in democracy, Um, that um, things that we thought were automatic, things that we thought would never change have, and the only people standing between you and a very dark, dark future is your own democratic principles. So thank you, Dahlia, for coming. This was so much fun. And tell me you'll come back and uh, we'll do it again sometime. Come for the nihilism. Stay for the vestigial filament of Planet of the Apes imagery of hope. <laughs> I loved it. Thank you for having me. And um, My pleasure. It, it's really, it's just always a treat to be in conversation with you. Thank you. Likewise. And that was Dahlia Lithwick. I told you she was great, and she is just so much fun to to chat with. So what do I take away from all that? Um, I think I take away, first of all, that nothing beats citizen democracy and democratic action, getting measures on the ballot, voting for people that you think share your values, but that we also have to elect people who are daring enough to be bold in their reform aspirations that we need some real structural reform, that the democracy machine is broken, as Dahlia said, and that the court machine is broken, and that we can't simply scramble after every ridiculous decision and every outburst from a justice, that we need to think long-term. The right for decades promised that they would stack the court and repeal major gains uh, in civil liberties, civil rights, Uh, And they did that. And I think um, progressives, moderates, um, conservatives with a small C um, who believe in a a humble and a limited judiciary need to take the the same approach. And that means 
thinking hard about long-term reforms and electing people who will not be intimidated by the columns and the curtains at the Supreme Court and the robes and not be chased off the scent when uh, the justices squawk. So plenty to talk about. If you enjoyed this program as much as I did, uh, I certainly hope you'll come back. More important, tell your friends, ask them to follow us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.